This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, it's Craig. On Overdue, we've got you, the listener, covered on the books that you've been meaning to read. But what if you've been neglecting to explore some of the biggest headlines in the book world today? Well, then I would highly recommend checking out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by the Podglomerate. And even better, it just returned for a brand new season. Named a must-listen in 2022 by The Washington Post and The Guardian, Missing Pages lives up to the hype with its all-new season. Each week, host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick aims to set the record straight on the publishing industry's hot-button topics. I got so hype, I messed up the word publishing. (laughs) So hot-button topics here, Mm -hmm. like the rise of book bands across America, the insta-fame of Colleen Hoover, we've talked about that, Andrew, Mm -hmm. and the idea of who owns what in fan fiction. Not to mention, you'll also hear from notable guests like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico, Publishers Weekly's Jim Milliot, and many more. So don't miss out. Listen to Missing Pages on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite listening app. And tell them I sent you. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Are you scared yet? Yet? Yeah. Or always? We're getting close to the end of Spooktober. Like, have we, are you scared yet? Because I feel like you should get scared somewhere in like the middle of the month and then just (laughs) stay scared for until November. So far, I have been scared by spiders and witches and being lonely. Uh huh. Um, by, Humanimals and mm-hmm. science run amok. Yeah. Uh, by colonialism? By, by humanimals and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I'm ready to get scared again, but I don't I don't know what by right now. Do you have any ideas? It's like part apocalypse and part also colonialism oh, again. Oh, no. <laughs> Got him. Mm-hmm. What book did you read on this book podcast where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it? Oh, on that book podcast? I yeah. read Moon of the Crusted Snow by Wabgisha Grice. Oh. Yeah. It's a book that came out in 2018. It's got a sequel called Moon of the Turning Leaves that takes place like a decade or so or decade and change after mm. that I honestly might read. It like Maybe. just came out, right? It just came out, and yeah, it's got pretty good uh, Goodreads reviews. I didn't bring any good reads reviews. I don't have a song. The gu- my guitar's hanging on the wall because I cleaned my office today. So I, I mean, I have didn't... them for later. Oh, you do? But, oh, boy. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll get some at the ad break. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the book I read. Okay. So post-apocalyptic, but also colonialism. Yeah, and put... Uh, an asterisk after apocalypse because I want to talk about that some more later. Mm, okay. What's what's an apocalypse really? It's all relative, you know. I think you might be right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so Wabgisha Grice, uh, an author. This is an author recovering for the first time. Um, his friends call him Wab. I don't know if we're his friends yet, but jovial jovial Wab, jovial Wab. <laughs> Um, he is from the Wasaksing First Nation. He is of uh, Anishinaabe and Canadian descent. And 
so he lives in Ontario. He went to school at Toronto Metropolitan University, um, which you may know was also called Ryerson University. I'm highlighting this because it was uh, the namesake was removed because that guy was involved in the Canadian Indian residential school stuff. Nice. Cool. Uh, I thought you were calling it out because of our longstanding love of Ned Ned Ryerson, Ryerson. Yeah. from Groundhog Day, but no, it's a it's a different. It's worse a bad reason. one. Yeah, okay. bad one. <laughs> okay. Um, and that that factors into a lot of what um, Rice has written about. He studied journalism. He worked as a video journalist and a radio host for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Ever heard of it? CBC. I love going to cbc.ca to, to research stuff. <laughs> um, in the late 90s, he was an exchange student in Germany, writing about being an, an indigenous author or indigenous youth in a, in a foreign country. Um, he won some citations in 2014 for First Nations storytelling. And he says, in more than one interview, he kind of talks about his background as a journalist informing his writing style. I have a couple like questions about the, like I want to get your sense of what the writing style is as yeah, we sure. go forward. Yeah, that's fine. Um, his first book was a collection of short stories called Midnight Sweat Lodge in 2011, based on some stories he'd written as a teen growing up on reservation um, and inspired by other indigenous authors that his aunt was like sharing with him because he didn't, you know, wasn't encountering them anywhere else. His first novel was Legacy in 2014. And then this is his third novel in 2018, Moon mm-hmm. of the Crusted Snow. Mm-hmm. I saw, like, I, I think the press tour for Moon of the Turning Leaves, the sequel that came out, uh-huh. uh, really focused on, like, people going back to Moon of the Crusted Snow under lockdown and being like, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of those one of those books that was. I mean, it was well regarded at the time, right? It, it was like nominated for at least a couple of awards. Couple of awards. Yep. 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 And but it, it, people rediscovered its like poignance or like came to it during lockdown when they were looking for for something to do, and that sort of elevated it to a another level of fame. And it wasn't until I don't think that uh, Wob. St- quit his CBC job until like 2020, right? Yep, like he, he quit yep. to become a full-time writer. Not that he wasn't writing for the CBC, but yeah, uh, a fiction quit to writer, write, yes. quit to write books full-time yeah. after this book had its bounce. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about this book coming out of a couple of different impulses and, and things in his background. Like one, which it took me a couple interviews to find um, I found it one reference to it in cloudlakeliterary.ca. Um, and I just don't go to the Canadian internet too often. It's always <laughs> yeah. a, a joy. Um, you talked about the 2003 blackout, Andrew. Do you remember that? Did that affect you at all where you were in Ohio? I think actually I was at Cedar Point with Whoa. the high school band in August of, 23, of yeah. 2003. Yeah, I think that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So he was living in the Toronto area. Well, his the Wasoxing uh are outside of Toronto and so he was actually back home and it's this like I don't know, some power plants got all backed up because of leaves or something and the heat that sounds right. And then <laughs> uh too much load. Ha- I'm not an engineer. Too much load happened. Too much load because of leaves. And then uh, a software bug at an alarm system at an electrical company in Akron, Ohio went bad. 
and then things got too bad before people knew what was going on and then it like short circuited like 250 chunk of grid yes power stations for like most of it was resolved within like eight to 12 hours and some folks were without power for a few days Mm -hmm. and he talks about um when it happened he says uh my two younger brothers and I started making survival plans. We thought about the people in our community that we could partner with to make sure everyone was fed and safe. It seemed like a natural response for us, and it was actually very comforting to be there in a time of potential crisis. When I started dreaming up Moon of the Crusted Snow, I recalled those days, uh, and we had a very different response to a potentially world-ending moment compared to a lot of the dystopian books I'd read throughout my life. And that mm-hmm. is the the rap that I could find on this book you know, it's rooted in his, you know, in the Anishinaabeg community and their traditions and his sense of, like, what they've already gone through versus what a kind of traditional, tropey, post-apocalyptic thing is. Yeah. Um, and how a community with those traditions would kind of weather that storm. Yeah, and and interesting too because the the book takes place on a on a reservation too. They usually just call it the res. The res, um, yes. And uh, it's interesting that that the, like a lot of the people in the community, though they do as as, as the book opens, they have had uh, like a pretty reliable power grid and like cell phone service, and it's like connected to a hydroelectric facility, mm. um, and has been for a couple of years, but within living memory for even like you know people around our age uh they remember a time when that was less the case and when people had to do you know you had to like put food up for the winter because you could get cut off from you know the distant you know the civilization that could bring you like processed packaged food and and sure yeah all, all those resources that you would need to make it through the winter so like like yeah like we are a little bit removed from that level of, of like subsistence level mm-hmm. living, but we are, but, but it's not so far away that people don't still have those reflexes, you know? Sure. 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 I know. I know when the power went out, like when we were at Cedar point, we just sat around and we we're like, <laughs> well, can't ride any rides. I guess let's play solitaire and hang out until it comes back on, which we assume it will. We ended up being right, but yeah, still. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the time, apparently, it was the the second lar- like most widespread blackout in history. Huh. Um, not it, it has since been dwarfed by. Sure. Yeah. I mean, second place is already first loser. So. Well, you're right. No big um, deal. <laughs> and uh, he has versions of this sentiment scattered throughout much of the the press for this book. But an interview I found with PandemicUniversity.com. <laughs> Which was like, <laughs> I think it was people were in lockdown and like writers were looking for ways to like, you know, stay, you know, interested in writing and stuff mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to remember that the real world we all inhabit is already post-apocalyptic for indigenous nations everywhere. They've been removed from their homelands and their cultures have been brutalized as a result of settler, settler colonialism. The list goes on. So by choosing to write in the post-apocalyptic genre, I wanted to explore that a little more deeply. So he like he name checks McCarthy's The Road. He name checks other authors that have written in this genre, but felt that there was another perspective that you could explore, focusing on people who have already undergone kind of a cultural apocalypse of sorts. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And th- there is a passage from the book 
that I want to read a little bit later that is that that reiterates that sentiment you just expressed. So yeah, cool. Um, that's kind of the background that I think is worth talking about up top. There's some other stuff that maybe we can dig into once we get into the book itself, but I think it's time for you to go get your guitar and while we take an ad break. Okay, sounds great. Hey, Craig, it's Andrew. Remember me? I do from a few minutes ago, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And from like the last 15 years of our lives. Well, that too, yeah. Oh, you. Years. Oh, geez, oh, like 20 years. Oh, boy. Anyway, Craig, I remember you telling me about a podcast earlier, and I wanted to tell you about the same podcast because Please. I also want to recommend it. I have the perfect bookish podcast recommendation for you. It's called Missing Pages. It's hosted by renowned literary critic and publishing insider Beth Ann Patrick, and it's back for a brand new season. Produced by the award-winning firm The Poglomerate, Missing Pages features some of the biggest names in the book world today, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico, Publishers Weekly's Jim Milliot, and Slate columnist Laura Miller. Each episode, these lit heroes sit down with Beth Ann to set the record straight on the industry's pressing topics, including book bans in America and the various scammers impacting writing communities around the world. Don't know where to start? I'd highly recommend listening to the first episode of the new season, The Colleen Hoover Story. It's a compelling look at Hoover's rise to stardom and explores the central question. Is her career a sign of a changing literary landscape where book publishers are losing their power as the industry gatekeepers? As The Washington Post and The Guardian said, Missing Pages is a must-listen, and I couldn't agree more. So go ahead and listen to Missing Pages wherever you get your podcasts. So when we do Spooktober, yeah. it's usually like hauntings and monsters and like I feel like there's often a creature or some I don't I don't know. Like I, yeah. I don't have the full list of every Spooktober in front of me, but I feel like it's balanced towards sort of paranormal and uh, otherworldly activity. Yeah. Usually there's usually some sort of classic universal monster or some other sort of metaphysical horror, you know. We have not mm. done too much alien stuff in Spooktober. Yeah. Trying to remember, did we do that Ziggurat book in Spooktober? I don't think we did. Ooh, I think no. it was a different one. Wasn't that yeah. the one we did, like, around a football game? Like, you went and I think read it, it again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was horrifying enough in its yeah. own right. Yeah, to have to read a book twice. Ooh, spooky. Whoa. <laughs> But no, I, I'm just so kidding. Reading a book, reading a book twice is great. Everybody <laughs> wants to read a book twice. Please go ahead, do it. Don't pay attention to me. But you are you are revving up to a point that this is maybe a slightly different vibe for Spooktober. Yeah, like there is there is a psychological element to it. There is kind of I mean there there is a a creature not mm. like directly involved, but sort of referent like a creature is implied. Sure. Okay. Uh, I told you about. I, I hopefully you did the yep. research that right. I asked you to do about. about I have. That. I have stared this creature in the face, and I'm Wonderful. ready to tell you Can't about wait. it. Yeah. But I would say that the sense of dread and foreboding is very appropriate to to Spooktober, especially sure. because right off the bat, like early in the book, the the main character Evan pulls his cell phone out of his pocket and notices he doesn't have service. And oh then no! He go, and then he goes home. And his wife's like, yeah, it's weird. Like the satellite TV went out and, I, and nobody knows what's going on. And I'm like, man, just I want to reach in the book and shake them and be like, get 
get ready. It's not. <laughs> it's not coming back. I don't know anything about this book, but I know it's not coming back. <laughs> yeah the the words that I saw in a couple uh, reviews, not the ones with the music yet. Okay, good. Um, in Publishers Weekly, uh, used the word slow burning thriller. Okay. The Seattle Book Review used quiet thriller, used the word thoughtful at one point, and then when it was describing the plot of the book, used the phrase hazards slowly mount. So you can mm-hmm. see the theme that I saw. Like, I, it is not my impression that it is a long book, but it's not. It's like two hundred pages. It, yeah. The the wor- words like propulsive did not appear. You know. Yeah. 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 And I don't and mean that necessarily is negative. It no, just it's wasn't not negative. And and you can sense in the in those reviews, the reviewers s- trying to say, yeah, this is a bit of a slow burn, but not in a bad way. Like they're, they're being careful about their word selection in that yes. way. Um, like it's not long enough that it can be <laughs> a truly slow burn. I think I yeah, do. Sure. Okay, people who won't maybe vibe with this book as much is like anybody who wants to get to the scene where they explain what why the world ended because <laughs> it yeah. never it never happens. It's not important. It's not a question that the book is interested in interfacing mm. with. And the glimpses that we see of any like off the res society at all is like super brief, secondhand, not important. Sure. So that that a nice little segue to our three st- okay three star Goodreads review. Thank you, Andrew. Kara uh, <laughs> generally liked it. Thought that the suspense worked and liked Evan's growth. Didn't enjoy Rice's writing style. Used the word purple, which is kind of the exact opposite of everything I heard about the book. So we'll come. We'll circle back to that. Purple and just being like a synonym for florid or yeah, which yeah, is, okay, okay. Um, Debbie enjoyed the depiction of the res and the atmos- the wintry, tense atmosphere, but found the plot and some characters a little thin. That's uh, fair. And sure. then K, I have the full quote here: "Moon of the Crusted Snow" is a very a very subtle post-apocalyptic novel. I'm fine not knowing the cause and that it's left a mystery. If you're okay with no action and enjoy learning about the culture and customs of the First Nation people, then this is for you. The vibe of that is very like, yeah, I'm fine with not knowing why the apocalypse happened. Don't write in the newspaper that I am mad about (laughs) not knowing why the apocalypse happened. I enjoy the spiritual aspect and their relationship to the land. I wish there was a bit more tension and more character development. So this seems to get a little bit towards what you were saying. Like if you're not here to just kind of like sit at the, you know, the, the log that is burning, that is this book, that's just going to be there all night for Mm -hmm. you. Then maybe this is not the book for you or it's not as much of the book as it could be. Yeah. I definitely get like the, the complaints about under like, I don't know, lightly drawn characters. Sure. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't think I had a problem with it. I will say that like the villain of the book is pretty like transparently one dimensional and, and villainous, but, there was an interview where some guy was like, I love that he was such a villain. And Rice was like, I know, right? So I think that's all. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's author intention. And, and, right I, was, and I, was, I was going to follow it up with, you know, you, you are writing a book from an indigenous perspective and a big white guy who looks like he could have been at January 6th shows up. Like, it's pretty, 
clear <laughs> that sure. he's going to be the villain. Like, and, and you don't need to know a whole lot more than that. But there's not. It does go from zero to to evil. Like, okay, quick. yeah. Um, all right. I think this gives us kind of a sense of like where you're at with the book, where some other people have been with the book, which we don't always get to right up top, but I think is maybe a, a, an interesting way to start. So now, what is the book, though? So Evan is out, and it's it's late fall. Uh, no snow has fallen yet, and he is out. Uh, you know, he, he is hunting the... He is hunting moose. He is trying to, you know, put up food for his... Uh, his immediate family, his extended family, and also hopefully enough that people on the res who do not prepare as they should. And and there are very lightly judgy bits of this where like it's, it's a very interesting um, tension between community and like rugged individualism. I think sure. where, where yeah. Evan is like, yeah, I am out being self-sufficient and providing but i'm also doing this as like part of a collective and i really would like it more if everybody in this collective sort of took that obligation as seriously as i did you know what i mean <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um like everyone not, who's not in a wor- way that worked on a group project in school knows yeah, that feeling yeah. yeah and not not in a way that like begrudges them the the food that he would give them if they yeah. needed it but just in a way where like you know it's these are these are our people's ways. This is one way that we stay connected to our past and our heritage. Yeah. And it's too bad that people are too busy smoking weed and playing video games to, <laughs> you know, to, to be honoring that consistently. Sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, he, he does trap a moose. Um, he does sort of a ritual where th- there are a lot of, uh, Ojibwe words or uh, Anishinaabe words, it's kind of used interchangeably, um, that are sprinkled throughout the book. They're mostly, you're you're mostly left to to figure out what they mean from like context clues. And uh, this was all intentional. Bob has said that he didn't include a pronunciation guide or like a, a... dictionary because <laughs> he wanted readers to quote do work on their own as part of active learning yeah did so. is it for this is just a very minor thing is it mm. italicized at all or no. is it just great yeah no. uh, that that's the thing that daniel jose older said um the guy who wrote what is that oh it's that urban fantasy book i read like years and years ago okay. um something shaper I don't know. He he talked about like these are characters for whom Shadow like, Shaper? Shadow Shaper, yes, thank you. For whom like Spanish is not an uh, like an outside language to their brain. Like he's just going to if they're going to use Spanish words, he's just going to write that in with the rest of the other words in the book. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm interested I'm it's cool to see that also at play here. That's just a neat That's just a neat thing that people do. Yeah, it was just there's a there's a um thing that i i mean i know it's been a a thing for a long time but i just like encountered it within the last few months this phenomenon of no sabo kids i don't know what is, that is yeah it's a so the way to say i don't know in spanish like correctly is no say but mm. kids who speak it in snippets or like don't speak it fluently might say no sabo which would be like the normal conjugation of the verb instead of knowing it's like, you know, trying to teach a four year old how to like yes. spell and talk and stuff. And it's sure. like, man, all a lot of these words have letters that are 
working against me right now. <laughs> like, it's just it's a, an artifact of of being like a non-native speaker of, yeah, a, of sure. a language. It's just like the little nuances and stuff that you don't that you don't get, and like kind of learning to embrace them and be okay with them, and like pushing back on people being snobs about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But as long as, as, long as everybody's operating in good faith, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the context for a lot of the uh, of the language in in this book is uh there there's a section where it's explained a little bit it's uh Evan and Nicole so Evan is the is the main character Nicole is his not not wife but like partner mother of his children like that the, getting married was in is in the cards but like it just hasn't happened sure for various reasons uh, Evan and Nicole had grown up in an era when Ojibwe wasn't spoken much with the younger generation at home. It was only two generations before Nicole and Evan that speaking Ojibwe was punished at the church-run schools that imprisoned stolen children, and the shame attached to it lingered. Evan and Nicole had vowed to make things different for their kids. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's a moment of like okay, we still have like living memory of like native speakers of this language, but. It's also an almost living memory where, yeah, <laughs> or, or still yeah. living memory where this was like being beaten out of people so they would assimilate. Yeah, it's called the 60s scoop or the mm-hmm. scoop because it wasn't just confined to the 60s. But that's yeah. the policy of uh, like just taking kids and putting them in the residential schools or, you know, having them get forcibly adopted by white families or something. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like Evan, Evan and Nicole as non-fluent speakers wanting to ensure that their kids are more like fluent and connected to the language and the yeah. traditions than they are. Um, so yeah, just just like a little interesting note. It, it's my understanding that that is Wob's like personal experience from interviews. He's kind of talked about like yeah, he grew up on the res, but like that kind of generational knowledge loss certainly happened in his community, yeah. mm-hmm. and so. One of the reasons he's interested to write this fiction is to, you know, explore it and connect it and put the traditions yeah. on the page. And I even read about like uh, indigenous CBC broadcasters who would work in uh, things like Miigwech, which is thank you, or Chi Miigwech, which is big thank you, which yeah. I like a lot. And it, yeah, <laughs> uh, and just just uh, like working those little bits of of language into the into the thing to like normalize them and and make them, you know, bring them to the forefront. Almost every video interview I saw with him involved him bringing Ojibwe language in yeah um, yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah uh so yeah I will I've, I've looked up the pronunciation of a few big words I will try not to butcher anything yeah, sure. too too badly but know that exposing you to the language and making you go look up the pronunciation of it yourself is part of Wob's project <laughs> in, in, Good work. in doing yeah this. okay <laughs> uh so Evan is is you know he's bringing this moose home he does have to uh, butcher it out in the, out in the, uh, out in the wild instead of bringing it back to his house and doing it. So he has to like give up the skin and stuff. But it you is. You think that very, they smell it's a, it's bad a, on the outside? It's an Oregon Trail situation. I'm going to ignore what you just said. It's okay. an Oregon Trail situation where he can only bring 200 pounds of meat back <laughs> to his wagon. Oh, so you're allowed to make the the nerd reference. I'm not. Okay. Well, mine. Yeah, sure. Mine. Is <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the moose. Uh, just he just bring he just bring the moose back. He does a little ritual around the moose. He brings it back to his family, and when he gets back to the house, that's when he notices, you know, that cell service is out and the satellite is out. Okay, and you get some scenes of him going around the res and and sort of meeting relatives and friends, and goes to his dad's house, helps him 
skin and moose it's it's here where you start to get a little bit of like his family dynamics because he has a sort of pothead brother who is not as interested in in living off the land his dad is is the opposite like he's he's trying to be like self-sufficient and also a good member of the community uh but he's also a man of few words but his dad has this creepy dream that he tells him about and evan is evan is just surprised to even hear his dad talk this much about oh, cool about anything let alone like a dream that he had it's very but he has this, just this creepy dream where um a bunch of people from the from the res are like standing around looking in the snow looking a little emaciated like looking at this big burning field and his dad is like yeah i i think they were trying to like burn the the like drive the moose out of the forest with this controlled burn so the community could you know kill them and get food but like it's creepy i just had a bad i had bad vibes oh no I had. <laughs> oh dear and if, yeah a few people have bad dream vibes uh so shortly after this happens, the power goes out and the snow starts. Um, mm. It's going to be it's going to be a long winter mm. up here on the res. Um, and like, at what point do you want to talk about how the book is written? How do you want to talk about like how time moves? What do you, what do you want to know about how the story is told? And I can kind of use that to I mean, keep I, jumping from plot point to plot point. Yeah. I mean, I want to know what happens. I guess yeah, sure. I want to know, yeah. uh, like it doesn't sound like you particularly thought that the character work was like overly shallow, but maybe that just like the book was fine with the amount of depth it had. So like, are there other like folks most we char- need to know about? Yeah. I mean, the, the, I don't even know that we really need to know about a ton of them by name. Like there's, there's Tyler who is the sort of head of the council that runs this community. Sure. Um, and then Evan and Nicole, we talked about, and then we're going to talk about this guy, um, Scott. Oh, Justin Scott. Just Justin Scott, who has, yeah. I don't know what it is about people with two first names, but it's just I don't trust so, them. Um, <laughs> I don't trust inter- people with two first names. I'm just going to come out. And say it. An interview with Humber Literary Review, um, they brought up the name of this guy, Justin Scott, who's going to be the villain. It's my understanding. Um, and he told a story Wob did about an email he received from some guy who was like, Hey, the students in my class were talking about Justin Scott and they were wondering if his name was a combination of Justin Trudeau and Duncan Campbell Scott, this notorious like Indian affairs minister who was an uh-huh. awful person. Uh-huh. Uh, and Wob was like, you know, that was pretty clever. I didn't do that on purpose. It just, I needed the most Canadian sounding name possible. <laughs> Definitely one of those like I didn't do this on purpose, but I don't mind the read yep, yep. situations. Uh huh. Yeah, sure. Uh huh. Um. Yeah. You, you get a you get a ton of different community members other than this. Most of them have like a thing that you kind of know about them. That seems like the type of book that it is because it's mm-hmm. like there's going to be a problem, and maybe a few problems, and we need to know that it's happening in this kind of rich, dense community. Mm-hmm. But it's not a slice of life book where we're gonna spend time with every person. No, and not even like a ton of of Evan with like do, doing heart to hearts with other people who he he knows. Like Evan yeah. is a very, I don't know if taciturn is quite as far. I, sure, I wouldn't go quite sure. as far as taciturn. I think his dad's maybe a little taciturn. But Evan is is very. He's not the leader of the 
community. Like he definitely feels a sense of responsibility to the community. He definitely goes out and does things on behalf of the community, but he seems to very much live his life in terms of like things that need to be done. Like sure. the snow starts, snow starts falling. So I'm going to go out and plow the roads. Like he even talks about his responsibilities as like a member of this council kind of changing with the seasons because so much of it is just dependent on, okay, what needs to be done yeah. right now at this specific time. Okay. Um, so, so the res is pretty remote. Like it's not a, it's not a situation where I think it's like 200 kilometers or something to the nearest town. So, that's some, that's a, sounds like what I read in a review, something like that. Yeah. And it, it's, it's which not is, a real which place. Which is 100, which is yeah. 200 kilometers is Canadian for 125 miles, just in case. <laughs> which if you're assuming sort of flat midwestern terrain, like I, it's if, pretty far. If, you, if you are a U.S. listener yeah, and you're assuming flat midwestern terrain and you grew up answering the question, how far away is it? in minutes <laughs> instead of in <laughs> in miles it's about a mile per minute <laughs> okay maybe a okay. little bit more but it's not a not a thing where especially when the when the snow starts it's not a thing where like going from the res to somewhere is going to be easy and vice versa yeah that's not yeah they're cut off ma'am yeah it's a very isolated does it start um, to feel like we're in an apocalypse store like does the does a curtain descend and they are now in an apocalypse story? There, like, there is a curtain that descends. It does. It does take a while, but you can definitely see it. Okay, like, hanging over you for a while. Like I, I knew that things were going to get bad from the moment that, <laughs> yeah, you know, communication started to be cut off. Sure, and and you know most most of the people in the story can rationalize it. Like you know, it was only a couple of years ago before the hydroelectric power came in. Yeah, yeah, that power outages stopped being a thing that we could expect. Like we still have these diesel generators because we relied on them, but they were going to get disconnected in like a year or two. Like they were scheduled to be decommissioned. So, you know, it's, it is, it's common enough that the leaders of the community, especially the older people in the community do not panic right away just because this stuff is happening. Sure. Um, Evan does start thinking about, and everybody really does start thinking about, okay, we have, even before it becomes clear that they're going to need to make their, like, diesel fuel last for as as long as they can possibly make it last, like, they start thinking about, okay, I think we have enough to last till Jan, till, like, February if people use it responsibly and maybe we can stretch it beyond. And, like, people are already thinking in terms of, well, what if the like truck of food that's supposed to come doesn't show up. What if the, like the refuel of diesel doesn't show up? You know, it's, it's yeah. People used to having to think in this way, even if they haven't had to for a couple of years. Sure. Sure. Yes. You have this, uh, this big sort of town meeting, um, with, I I might've called him Tyler before it's Terry is the name of the, of the guy who's in charge of the council. Okay. Um, it is, it is clear that Terry is not like the most inspiring leader of (laughs) leader of, people okay that he could be like he he is very much like he he is on top of distributing tasks and telling people what they need to do but not as good at like quelling panic or sort of making people yeah. feel like their needs are being attended to sure um, but they you know they they settle in for what everybody seems to be planning 
to be, you know, like a, a week or two of hardship, like oh relative boy. hardship, or just like oh needed no. to rough it, needed to rough it a little bit. I remember this feeling. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine two weeks, why this. Everybody. Can't imagine why this resonated with people during the during the like the height of the pan- early pandemic. Jeez. <laughs> Um, and, and then, so, so this is where we get into how like time flows in the book. It is never, you never, ever, ever, like there are two, you know, there's one division in the middle. There are like two books to this book. One is fall, one is winter. That's it. Like, like that's the only time that Wob is ever like, this is, this is how much time has passed. And it's almost as much like thematic as it is about time. Sounds like it. So you never get like a two weeks later, two months later, um, It'll just you will the next chapter will start and you all need to read the first few paragraphs to get a sense of like how much how much time has passed, like whether this is happening right after what you just read or if it's been a little bit. Okay. Generally, the first half of the book is happening pretty much in in real time or like, you know, if you have a time jump, it'll be like the next day. It's only once you get a little bit later that it starts making larger leaps. And I think this is where some of the character development that people might've wanted is getting like jumped a little bit, alighted over. Yeah. But I do, but that does feel true to how this type of thing might like kind of be in your brain where you're like, and, and Evan is talking about like, yeah, people know people figure out when it's Tuesday because Tuesday is the day we distribute the food. But other than that, like, yep. People are just focused on getting by and nobody really knows like what day or month it is anymore because the human construct of like calendars has become much less relevant to our everyday lives. Yep. Um, So the the next big thing that happens is so, so you you know, you got this community. There's a there's a scene of panic at the grocery store again. Not familiar at all. Nope. Um. Evan is taken aback a little bit by like the, the panic on display and the like, I guess selfishness is the word I would use just the, the you know, people looking out for number one that's happened, that, that is happening at this, at the grocery store. Um, he does not, Evan is not impressed with the guy who runs the grocery store for like how he's handling the situation. Okay. Um, but the next, next big scene that happens is this guy on a big black snow, snow machine, Shows up. It's called a snowmobile in the book. I just it says snow machine because. <laughs> okay. Because I'm eternally living in the year 2009, I guess. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, rides up in a snowmobile. It, he takes his helmet off in my head because for some reason I was reading about Stone Cold Steve Austin recently. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> I think, well, it was because I saw a bad, like, so Facebook Oh no! I think via Instagram is creating like these bad AI like characters. Oh yes, and they okay. created bad AI Jane Austen, and Jane Austen's AI account posted this picture of like a, of like a bunch of macarons and stuff. And aside from looking like AI busted, like you know, fine detail tends to look macarons like rose to popular as we know them rose to popularity like well after jane austen was yeah. dead but anyway somebody at in the work chat where we were talking about this talked about stone cold jane austen and i was reading about stone cold steve austen and so okay in conclusion <laughs> justin scott is cast in my head by like prime attitude yes. era 
Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, Austin don't trust anybody. Austin three sixteen says mm-hmm. I just kicked your, you know, like mm-hmm. driving a beer truck into the ring and spraying Vince McMahon with a hose of beer. Mm-hmm. Yes, middle fingers, all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of you know he is kind of a heel character. I feel like it seems it's like plays it plays to had Stone Cold Steve Austin done what The Rock did and pursued an acting career. This feels like the one kind of character that he could maybe play. <laughs> Are you looking up whether Stone Cold Steve Austin has had an acting career? Well, yeah, because I know he was in the film The Condemned. I just couldn't remember. Okay. He was in The Expendables. Oh, sure, he could. Be, yeah, he. That's a that, that film was full of beef. <laughs> that's like that's like Evans' shed. It's just full of meat. Yeah, he was in Grown Ups too. Okay, don't remember what that movie was about. I. So Justin but, Scott shows Justin Scott as played by Stone Cold Steve Austin shows up <laughs> to the res and he is saying, you know, I have I'm I, I I can make myself useful. I know how to live off the land. Uh I brought some supplies. Um and I just I just want to join you. Like I there's oh okay, you you asked about the moment that the curtain lifted. So I don't sure. wanna, I don't want to skip that. There's a moment where a couple of Kids who grew up in the res but were away at school make their way back to the res on snowmobiles. And this is the only glimpse that we get of outside like, th- yeah. of, of the outside world. This is when we learn, yeah, the truck with more groceries is not gonna come. The truck with more diesel is not gonna come. Like, you know, the the the, the precautions you've already been taken taking are going to be necessary because things are not gonna get better. And we okay. get a couple scenes of kids at a college just like sitting and eating sandwiches and waiting for the power to come back and like slowly just like people start to disappear and things start to like order starts to break down and the security guard stops showing up just like things stop working gradually as people who assumed you know that that society will just keep on humming yeah. come to the conclusion that it's not going to keep on humming. Okay. Okay. And That's so because cool the, the cuz these two boys are are from the res, I think in in the way that Wob, you know, he he yeah. talks about the inspiration for this story being where his mind went during that blackout. Like the, yep. these two 18 or 19 year olds immediately start thinking, okay, every time they give us a sandwich in this cafeteria, we're going to save part of it for later. We are going to start looking for transportation like we're going to start trying to figure out how we would get out of here if things went really bad just in case things go really bad yeah sure um so that's kind of the like okay the world out there is not going back to normal that is what that is when all the characters in the book learn what you as the reader of the book have already assumed is is coming you know uh so uh justin scott I'm just going to call him Scott because I know if I keep trying to say his whole name, I'm going to start calling him Scott Justin. <laughs> Stone Cold uh, Scott Justin. He Stone Cold Scott Justin shows up. He follows the snowmobile tracks of these these two boys. Like this is the next day. Oh, okay. And he shows up, and Evan is there to greet him, and Evan like pulls his rifle out because you know he doesn't know this guy. He doesn't trust him. Um, he knows that guy, this yeah. stuff in society has gone bad, and. So Scott is like obviously transparently bad news Mm. and everybody knows that he's bad news, but also nobody wants to like 
turn an able-bodied person away in these yeah. like in these circumstances people are like you know maybe we can give him a chance maybe things will be okay and he instantly starts like subtly undermining the council and then things come to a head when like four other survivors from somewhere else show up they are they are not as self-sufficient they're looking pretty emaciated pretty desperate one of these four people makes a rush at the group like it's, it's Evan and, and Terry and Scott and a couple other people from the from the council who are all who've all come to see what these people are about. And this is the only other like group of survivors you ever see. And everything else is just like intra res. Sure. Sure. Uh, drama. Um, one of them rushes the group and Scott shoots him dead. Oh, no. And in the like Terry, who we, we know is not the, the most capable leader. It's like, well, what happens? You know, he's so he just like is shocked. He doesn't know how to deal with this. He kind of says what happens next. And Evan realizes that there's like a power dynamic that's shifted where Terry is now looking to Scott to like tell him what to do. Uh, and this, this is when time starts jumping a little bit. And by the you know, we, we catch back up with everybody when it's been, a, you know, a, either a few weeks or a couple of months and. Yeah, people people on the res have started dying. They're they're kind of stacking them up in this building that is cold enough that their bodies will not decompose until um the the thaw comes in and they can like bury them and, and give them you know the last rites. Funeral rites, yeah. Yeah. Um and I think especially among the people who were not as prepared for winter to be bad, Scott and his like supply of smokes and booze that he brought and his just like bravado and, and self-assuredness has kind of created a little like splinter group within the res where he's got influence over, a, a, over enough people that it would not be easy to just like make him go away unilaterally yep. kick him out or, or whatever. It feels, it feels, you know, it's a, it's a pretty broad comparison, but the dynamic, the power dynamics remind me of Lord of the Flies. Where it's like, oh, there's like kind of a, a practice. I, I think that was a reference book of of Wobbs. Okay. I think you mentioned the road already, but yeah, yeah, Lord, yeah. Lord of the Flies is up in there. Cause just the 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 relationship between the two boys who become the the two leaders, and the one like the main character who's like, I guess I'm in charge, but mostly just it's because I'm the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the bad boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that that seems to be kind of a little bit of the of the Justin Evan dynamic. All right, go ahead. Well, you call him Justin. His name's Scott. No, his name is Justin. His name is Justin Scott. <laughs> and I also like I, I'm I also struggle not to bring Scott Calvin into it because he's another guy with two first names. <laughs> you know? What about John Calvin? Well that's uh, he <laughs> That's a, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. <laughs> what about him? <laughs> so Justin Scott Cal Stone Cold Justin Scott John Calvin. <laughs> there there are uh, this is where I'm going to elide over the most stuff in the book. Sure, I'm that's just, fine. We're just going we're just going to skip a bunch of stuff cuz the the big conflict is now like Evan kind of trying to protect his family specifically but also like trying to make sure that food from the, because there was at, at some point 
uh, the res passed a resolution that said like, we're going to have this like underground bunker. That's got like two years worth of the canned food in it. So, you know, it's canned food. It's a little gross. People aren't like hype to eat it nope. forever, but everybody shows up on Tuesday to get their box of it. Don't they? Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he helps distribute that. He helps check in on his family members. Um, and he worries about Scott. And that's kind of where he is. There is one day at food distribution where like a sort of brawl kind of breaks out because people are getting a little bit desperate. Um, Scott shows up and starts just like stage whispering to everybody like, hey, the food's going to run out. But I I know where we can get more food. And I I think, you know what I'm talking about. Mm. And it so remember when people started dying. Oh, and and they're putting them in a cold room where they're. Bodies won't decompose. Huh. It's kind of like a refrigerator, like a refrigerator, like you might put a meat in. Like oh, like a, in like in the movie meat. Rocky. Yeah, where you could go in and you could punch meat. Mm-hmm. Rip in peace, Polly. He piece. just passed away. Oh, oh no, yeah. I don't know the actor. Not I no, mean, I, I understand. I understand that it's not the fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so so a Rocky fridge they've got on the res now. Yeah, I mean the people—it's not people hanging from the ceiling, but anyway, it's a fridge with uh, with people with dead bodies in it, and mm. Scott is going around just like very transparently suggesting, "Hey, why don't we uh, why don't we eat some folks? Because it's a that's just an awful lot of meat not to use. You know what I mean?" Can I ask a question? Sure. Is he like jazzed to eat it, or he is seems he, pretty like, psyched? Okay, like. It does seem like a thing he it could also be doing. This not is not necessarily mutually exclusive. Is to kind of like really mess up the community dynamics by encouraging people to do this. Yeah, and it's not. It's never made explicit that this is like a a uh, like it's him trying to play on the like use every part of the animal thing. Oh like it's boy. never it's never suggested that that's what he's doing. I think he's just pretty horny to eat some people. Oh great! Like okay. as a as a power move almost. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, not sure, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. Okay. So, like, Stone Cold Scott Justin is opening up a can of human remains on, <laughs> on people. <laughs> okay, so this is where the the mythical creature. This is where the mythical. Enters. Yeah. So, so, tell me how it appears in the book. It it is never mentioned by name in the book. Evan has a dream where he's like in this building with all the dead bodies. And this sort of like almost werewolfy looking version of Scott is in there and like lunges at him and then he wakes up. Okay. Um, but it mentioned in the uh sort of uh what's the what's the name? Like the agno- acknowledgments okay. Okay. section. Yeah. So not part of the story in the after part of the story. <laughs> after the words. Wob mentions the Windigo. The Wendigo. The Windigo. Windigo? Yeah. Wendigo, yeah, like indigo, but with a W. I've it is also sometimes written Wendigo, okay, like Wendy right. goes somewhere, mm-hmm. but you know, okay, Wendigo, Wendigo. Uh, the the Wendigo is a looming, often implicit figure in this story. The figure okay. is hinted at, but it's this is me quoting from the book. Sure, the figure is hinted at, but its image doesn't emerge until closer to the end. The written references are based on stories I heard from elders in my community as I grew up. Yeah, sure. 
Um, but yeah, so so like this is as close as we get to a monster. What you, what can you tell me about Wendigo? So I can tell you that the monsters in the video game Until Dawn that we have <laughs> played together were ostensibly Wendigo. Mm-hmm. Um, it is kind of a go to. Uh, it has been depicted in various media. Horror, f- horror movies, and many of them not by people of indigenous descent, as just like, hey, we need a monster that's like not a vampire and it eats stuff. Not a vampire, not a werewolf. Like, what can we do? Can with we this? do something yeah. different? Mm-hmm. Um, it not like is, a not a Mothman. <laughs> yeah, um, it is from traditions of largely the Algonquin speaking uh, speaking First Nations, including the Anishinaabe, the, the Ojibwe. Um, many legends have it that like. Humans transform into Wendigos because of greed or some sort of weakness, mm-hmm. um, or they're weakened by like other conditions and then maybe possessed by an evil spirit, and they have a thirst for blood. Sometimes they can infect others with their evil. And the main like metaphor behind the Wendigo, or at least how it's been deployed since, is that it is really about like the worst of individualism Mm -hmm. versus a community. So Mm -hmm. it it is like cannibalism plays a part, but also like hunters who hunt for sport or take more than their share uh, might get cursed and then become a Wendigo or something like that. That's that's an interesting contrast with, with Evan who is, who does get exasperated with people who are not, you know, are who are not pulling their weight, but it is it is very much a. Wouldn't it be nicer if you were doing more in service of the community and not a. It wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to shoulder the burden of of you freeloaders. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> and and in indigenous fiction, it has become a pretty versatile metaphor for, uh, you know, capitalist injustices against indigenous folks and. Just kind of the, uh, I don't know, I'll take what I want and then the other people can just like get stuffed like energy mm-hmm. that drives most of colonialism and uh, other awful behavior. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of like, I don't know, it it can just be a uh, kind of a husk of a person. It can have some animalistic features it can be kind of werewolfy. It can be kind of like the creatures from the movie The Descent, where they're just kind of like, I don't know, it was in a cave forever, and mm-hmm. it's just a, a gray monster. Yeah, and like in this this case, it's like part dream and part what is at the root of Stone Cold Scott Justin when society crumbles away. Like, yeah. like what yes. is what is his like base? Form that he reverts to his when final form. Yeah. Society is not there to, yeah. you know, to keep him in check and keep but, him keep him in the ring. <laughs> yeah, got to pin him. Mm-hmm. Um, but this does not actually happen. It's in the dream. It's, it's in not a dream. real. Okay. It's in a dream. But no, he did. He did. He did take a body and is boiling it to eat it. No. So he is. He is doing the Wendigo thing. Don't love that. No. Uh, so yeah, Evan and a couple of of his friends from the res go to confront Scott Justin, Justin Scott, and they end up shooting him and killing him. Um, 
And Evan, I don't know what happens to Evan. I'm just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna reveal the Whoa. It's it's left ambiguous in this book, and then the minute you look up anything about the sequel, it's it becomes instantly unambiguous. So just like figure it out for yourself, I guess. <laughs> sure. What did he say about writing the sequel? He said, um, "Yeah, you you do this, and then I'll I'll read where the book oh, yeah. sees itself like relative to other apocalypse fiction. Yeah, because it sure. Both is and is not apocalypse fiction, and we, then I think we can be done. Um, he says he uh, he wrote. Moon of the Turning Leaves, because the readers of Moon of the Crossed Snow wanted a sequel. I originally hadn't thought of exploring that world beyond the first story until the people who read it enthusiastically encouraged me to. That encouragement really was one of the greatest gifts I've ever received as a writer. Talks about wanting to spend more time with the characters, but certainly did not write this book with the notion that he would come back to it. Um, and yeah, so tell me, tell me what this book thinks of itself I guess is what yeah, you said. Yeah, and it is. It very much, it, you know, mirrors what you said. It's Evan has gone to help uh, Aileen, who is a an older woman in the community, is one of the few like native Ojibwe language speakers, sure, who still exists in the community. Like, is is one of their living links to this past that died down a little bit and now a lot of the younger people in the community are like consciously trying to to bring it back so like cool. evan evan feels really like consciously his bond with her both as an individual and as like a member of the the community uh so th- this is a kind of a longish passage but but here we go uh this is aileen uh you know when young people come over sometimes some of them talk about the end of the world uh, aileen said breaking the silence and snapping evan out of his wool gathering he looked up from the plaid pattern on the vinyl tablecloth to the old woman's face. They say that this is the end of the world. The power's out and we've run out of gas and no one's come up from down south. They say the food is running out and we're in danger. There's a word they say too. Apoc- uh, apocalypse? Yes, apocalypse. What a silly word. I can tell you there's no word like that in Ojibwe. Well, I never heard a word like that from my elders anyway. Evan nodded, giving the elder his full attention. The world isn't ending, she went on. Our world isn't ending. It already ended. It ended when the Jagnash, which is the white people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ended when the Jagnash came into our original home down south on that bay and took it from us. That was our world. When the Jagnash cut down all the trees and fished all the fish and forced us out of there, that's when our world ended. They made us come all the way up here. This is not our homeland, but we had to adapt, and luckily we already knew how to hunt and live on the land. We learned to live here. Uh, She became more animated as she went on. Her small hands swayed as she emphasized the words she wanted to highlight. But then they followed us up here and started taking our children away from us. That's when our world ended again. And that wasn't the last time. We've seen what this... What's the word again? Apocalypse. Yes, apocalypse. We've had that over and over. But we always survived. We're still here and we'll still be here, even if the power and the radios don't come back on and we never see any white people ever again. And that's... I think that is... It is interesting that Wob never thought about a sequel to this, but it really does invite a mm, sequel yeah. specifically because yes, part of the theme is this people and this community like enduring through hardship. So I'm, I'm glad that he, a lot of people who have like sort of a breakout book like this that they didn't plan a sequel to or like, I could never go back to it. I, it would never be as good. I'm not, I just don't like... I didn't think about it that way, so I don't have anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm I'm glad that he decided to go back to it because I think it's really it 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 fits well with the perspective and then and the story that he's telling about yeah. 
like his people here. So yeah, I, I like that. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I think I'll just go ahead and read the sequel. The sure. other one is like, I enjoyed this book. I found it engaging. Yeah. It, yeah. Did you, and you yeah. liked the writing you didn't find uh, yeah, it. I, th- I think the, I think the writing is good. Like the, what I just read is a good, it's a little dialogue heavy, but like, it's a good example of just like, yeah, it's, it's words, it's words and they go together and they're yep. easy to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's what, he, whenever he was talking about his style, he's just like, yeah, you know, people, my editors encouraged me to, like, lean on my my journalism skills and just, yeah. like, get to the point. And I could, I could people see, feel like, good. you know, plaid pattern on the vinyl tablecloth. I could see sure. if you, like, collected every example of that, that you could get to, <laughs> like, oh, this is purple or, or whatever. But that's, that was, would not be the first word that I would pick. Cool. It exists somewhere between workmanlike and purple. Like it's it's just That's like a, I like where that is. That's a good yeah. place to be. It's like fiction prose, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in this fiction book, it's like some of the, yes, some of the words are there because they are because the author is like giving you a book to read. You know, <laughs> this is more words than is strictly necessary to convey the information the author is conveying. But yeah, sometimes that's just, just how it be. Sometimes authors don't always just give you an index card with a plot summary on. It. <laughs> yeah, right. Usually, they want you to pay for a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed the book, Andrew. Yeah, just it was. God, man, I keep coming back to. I keep wanting to use fun. I think when you say a book was fun, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the book. It was a, it was a fun time to read a book you found engaging and not like taxing. Yeah, you know? and then and then also you go out and do your the do the research and you find out more about the the context of the book and the author and and it, it actually enriches the book. Yeah, and it enriches the the read and it gives you more to think about. So yeah, it's good. It's good. Huh. Sounds and like kind of the spooky. ideal it's reading experience. <laughs> it's a good reading experience, and it's a little spooky because it's spooked over, even though there aren't any ghosts. Winter is kind of spooky. Stone Cold Steve Austin is super spooky. And eating people is kind of spooky. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Mm-hmm. Usually. Mm-hmm. Okay, make this, for make this about cannibal into a cantable. Send us an email overduepod <laughs> at gmail.com. Tell us what you think about apocalypses or not. Um, hit us up on social media at overduepod. Thanks to Alex, Caitlin, Trina, Mark, Elizabeth, and more for reaching out in the past week. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our website. We have links up there to the books that we have read and the ones that we're going to read. You can click those and buy the book. We haven't talked about that in a while, but if you like to read along, that's an option that is available to you. Yeah. Patreon.com slash overduepod is our Patreon project. Support us financially. Put our kids in school. uh, Buy us books and equipment. And join our Discord community. Get bonus episodes early. Get get other little odds and ends that we that we do for patrons. Everything yeah. shows up on the main feed eventually, but mostly the theme of our Patreon is like get stuff early. Come hang out with us sometimes for bonus episode recordings. Like let's just make a little community and have a fun time. I love it. I love yeah, it. come join our community. Yeah, and so Craig, this I'm I'm looking at this list right here, and so next week, and this seems like a weird fit for Spooktober. You're reading this book about work, like working out. I think I'm reading The Exorcist. Yeah, it's a so Pilates we're, we're gonna, book. We're gonna get buff. Yeah, we're gonna get ripped. William mm-hmm. Peter Blatty, a shredded man, I'm sure. 
<laughs> is going to teach us how to power lift some ghosts out of our lives <laughs> uh, next week for The Exorcist. Please join us. Please do. All right, everybody. Until we talk to you next time, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.